Thank you so much, and it's really great to be here with you. As, as Walter mentioned, I'm a former homeschooler myself. I was homeschooled for six years and loved every moment, or at least most moments of it. But it was really a tremendous, tremendously formative in my own spiritual journey and also, of course, my own vocation to the priesthood. And so I come to you as a former homeschooler, but also as a priest who's worked for the last 20 years, uh, both as a seminarian and as a priest, have been ordained 10 years, uh, pretty much full-time in youth ministry, uh, whether it's different retreat ministries or I've been chaplain of a Catholic high school for eight years now, and it's been a great honor to work with probably tens of thousands of young people from all ages, homeschooled, public school, uh, in every walk of life. And I've seen a few things that work and a few things that don't work, and today we're going to kind of look at the spiritual growth of young people from different facets, almost as if you were looking at a diamond. You see one facet, and then you turn it, and you see another facet. So these are just kind of different ways to look at spiritual growth of young people, which can have a great impact on the way in which we homeschool and the way in which we raise our kids. Now, it should be very apparent that I'm not a parent. <laughs> Nevertheless, from the outside in, I've seen a few things that do work. And so to kind of start off, I just want to mention the fact that our Catholic Church officially teaches that God gives everyone the grace to be saved. That, I think, is a good starting point because God desires our holiness. In fact, we talk about the universal call to holiness. That was one of the great themes of the Second Vatican Council, that every single person, no matter what their state in life, no matter their age, are called to holiness. I think of a great story back in, uh, in Poland, back in the 1950s, which of course at that time was under communist Russian rule. And the communists decided that one of the ways in which they were going to eliminate religion was to build the workers' paradise. It was a new city that they were going to call Novohuta, which literally means new city. And so they built this giant city with the finest housing, with great job opportunities, with great schools, great, great roads, great infrastructure. But there was one thing that was missing. And that was, of course, a Catholic church. Well, Poland is so deeply Catholic that that was a lack that a lot of people felt. And so as the, the, the uh, town became more and more populated, the people knew that there was something lacking within the heart of their town. And so in Nova Huta in the 1950s, they set up a giant cross, a giant wooden cross in the main square of the town. The communists saw this, took issue with it, and tore it down. But this, didn't, this, this led the people to be undaunted, and they put another one up, and the communists tore it down. They put another one up, tore it down, until finally the head came one Christmas Eve when a certain bishop went to this town to celebrate Midnight Mass. And as he's celebrating Midnight Mass in front of the newly erected, like the, the 12th cross that they had put up, the army basically gathered around, and they were prepared to shut down this Mass and arrest this bishop. But as the people started to sing and worship, they sang Silent Night and some of these old, beautiful Polish Christmas hymns, and even some of the soldiers, because it was so deeply rooted in their hearts, they started to sing along. And they ended up leaving without arresting the priest, the bishop, without taking down that cross. And of course, the bishop who was there to celebrate that mass was Bishop Karawatiwa, who of course is better known as Pope St. John Paul the Great. And he was there about 20 years later, he came back to his home country, which at that point had been under communist rule for 40 years. Now, the communists were not really all that pleased that the pope had returned to his home country, but they felt like, well, there's no way that we can refuse the pope's re-entry into his own country. So they let him come, but they figured after 40 years, they had had such control over the schools, over the media, that surely nobody had any faith left at all. Everybody was already well-formed as a communist and as an atheist. And yet when the pope came, Three million people showed up to the final mass. 
And as the Pope started to come down, getting ready to celebrate the Mass, spontaneously, a cry went up, we want God, we want God, we want God, until three million people were crying out with one voice, we want God. And of course, Pope John Paul II, in his imitable way, stood up there and said, ah, we have heard the cry of your heart that we want God. And that was the beginning of the end of the, of the communist uh, occupation of Poland, because we have what we believe is called a kapax dei, a capacity for God. And every human heart desires God. It was a great quote that was once, uh, once written. I, it was, I've heard it attributed to a number of sources like G.K. Chesterton, but it ended up being someone else who said that everyone who knocks on the house of a brothel is looking for God. Because really, everything we do is looking for happiness, and God is our deepest happiness. Now, that does not mean, though, that God gives the same amount of holiness to everyone. Some of you may be praying on a regular basis the litany of humility, which has a, always has a line that kind of stands out to me. And that line says that others may be holier than me, provided that I may be as holy as I ought to be. It's always kind of made me, it struck me like, wait a second, I'm praying that other people get holier than me. But the reality is that God has different plans for everyone. St. Therese of Lisieux gives the example of the different flowers in God's garden. And some are beautiful, shiny roses, and some are very gaudy lilies, but some are much more humble violets. And yet, nonetheless, whatever the flower is, it still gives glory to God and gives beauty to that garden of, of his souls. And so in the same way, God does not destine every soul to be like blessed Carlo Acutis, who at three years old was dragging his parents to Mass. How great that would be if all of our three-year-olds had such an acumen for the Eucharist. But to be honest, everyone's on a different spiritual journey. And so we hold both of those in tension, that every spiritual journey is very different, but at the same time, God really does want the personal holiness of every creature he's created, of every human being. So let's dive into it. First, the first facet we're going to look at in terms of a child's spiritual development, particularly you know, for those who are homeschooling their kids, is younger than 11 years old. We see from a psychological standpoint that under 11 years old, these are very rough stages, of course. Sometimes people, uh, kids, you know, mature earlier or later, or maybe just don't go through this particular stage, this particular social challenge. But we find that under 11 years old, most kids' lives revolve around their parents. So they'll simply adopt any attitude or any uh, worldview that their parents put forth. But around 11 and 12 years old, we start to see a shift. And this shift is away from the parents and for the first time recognizing that there's a whole group of peers that may have different worldviews and different interests and that all of a sudden the, the center of gravity for these kids around the age of 11 and 12 shifts from their parents to their peers. Now, around the year four, around, uh, age of 14, for the first time, kids start to develop the ability to think abstractly. Now, again, this is a rough, uh, a rough sketch. I know some kids develop it earlier or later. But around the year 14, a lot of kids start to question, well, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Is there a God? Is there any truth to our Catholic faith? And I see the kind of those abstract thoughts start to kind of boil up within a young person's mind. But finally, around the year 16, 17, we start to see the great challenge of independence as kids start getting driver's license and start getting jobs and then start uh, considering college and where they're going to go and really what is their path for life. And this challenge then is for them to kind of chart their own course. And our role as parents and as educators kind of shifts at that moment from being necessarily kind of more hands-on to a little bit more hands-off and more of kind of like the wise sage giving them the advice. 
So now these stages build upon each other. Certainly 17-year-olds are still sometimes as, as interested in what their peers think as 11-year-olds. But so how do we then, as parents and as educators, help these kids to develop a real faith life in Christ at these certain stages? Well, I think younger than 11, our goal is to root them deeply in their Catholic identity. And we do that in part by sharing our own personal faith with them. Because we don't just want to make them Catholics, we want to make these kids disciples. Because there's a lot of kids who may know everything about the Catholic faith, but are they convicted in their hearts? Do they really believe? You know, if you go back to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it talks about three elements to faith. The first element is belief in God. The second element is belief in everything God has revealed through scripture and tradition in the Catholic Church. And then the third element is trusting that God is faithful to his promises. And that's that element that's kind of more the element of the heart than the head. That's kind of that personal faith of saying, not only do I believe it up here, but I'm willing to entrust my life to God and surrender it to make Christ the Lord of my life. And so parents should really speak about their faith, their personal faith, their personal walk with Christ, and not just the Catholic faith in general, although that's also very important. Also in this stage, we can develop, help the kids to develop a real prayer life, not only teaching them the pre-written prayers that we have so richly in our Catholic tradition, but also teaching them to have a personal relationship with Christ where they can speak to Christ as a friend. You know, when I would go over my cousin's house, my aunt and uncle were very good about that. And every night before going to bed, not only would they teach them that our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be, but they would also spend time with them in giving thanks to God. Spend time with them in, in asking uh, supplication. Lord, bless this person. Lord, help me to grow in this virtue. And, and Lord, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for these ways in which I've offended you today. Just having that personal dialogue with Christ, I think, is an important thing to help the kids to know that Christ is our best friend, that we can truly turn to him at all times, good times and times of struggle. So around the year uh, you know, 11, 12, when that center of gravity starts to shift from the parents to the social life, really one of the, the main goals at this point is to start to surround kids with other friends and with other families that believe in the Catholic faith very deeply and that practice their faith. Surround them with like-minded families. And this is where a good Catholic youth group or a good Catholic youth program can be very effective. I know when I was about 11, 12 years old, and that was when I started homeschooling, I went from 7th through 12th grade, so kind of on the, the upper end, which is pretty rare. But in starting around year 11, I started to go, when I was homeschooled, to these Catholic boys' retreats that were run by the Legionaries of Christ. I was, got involved in what at the time was ECYD, which has now changed into uh, Conquest and Challenge. But at the time, I went just because of the sports. I didn't really have that much of a relationship with Christ personally. Yeah, I was Catholic. I knew I was Catholic. I loved being Catholic. But I went for the sports, and through the camaraderie, I discovered that there were other young men who loved Christ, and that there were other adults who loved Christ outside of my parents, and that made a deep impact on me. So finding youth groups or Catholic summer camps or just fun uh, get-togethers with other Catholic families can make a huge personal impact. Now, I know with some... Uh, Catholic homeschoolers, they kind of ask the question, well, but shouldn't we kind of like protect our kids from the influence of the world? And you know, I had a very good friend of mine who was very, a very devout Catholic, eight kids, and he decided to send his kids back to public school. And I asked him, I said, don't you know what's in public school? I mean, how are you going to allow your kids to experience this? And he said a great question, quote. He said, you know, when he, before he sent his kids to public school, he sat all of them down and had this conversation. He said, look, we're going to try this. 
But the ultimate question is, who's changing who? If you end up changing your school, then you can stay. If the school ends up changing you to become more like the values of the world, then you're coming back home. And as it worked, he gave his kids the tools necessary to really be great evangelists in their public schools. Now, of course, as homeschoolers, I don't recommend sending your kids to public school, especially today's modern world. But nevertheless, when you're surrounded by a group, uh, regardless of what it is, maybe it's your parish youth group where some kids are coming from public school, or maybe it's a sports team where other kids are you're kind of a little rougher around the edges, the ultimate question is, who's changing who? And we need to give our kids the tools at that time, 11, 12 years old, to realize, look, you can be a force for great good. You can be the evangelist among your friends. So stand firm on your identity. And not only do we need to have that relationship with our peers at 11, 12 years old, we also, a lot of middle schoolers really do want to have good, healthy relation, mentoring relationships with adults, too, in their life. Around that same time, when I started being homeschooled, my dad got involved in a group of other men who would go and gather on Saturday mornings for a time of prayer, other homeschool dads. And every now and then, he'd invite me. Now, every men's group in human history is at a terrible hour in the morning, 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday. I, if I was a layman, I'm not sure that I'd get up for that. But he invited me to go, and so I was like, hey, you know, time with my dad, sure. So I went there, and there I saw my baseball coach and my plumber and all these other men that I knew and respected from the community who were madly in love with Christ, who were praying the rosary together, who could talk about faith in a very normal and natural way. And that made a huge impact in my own personal life to see an adult that was not my parents, because you know when you're 12, your parents aren't cool. But to see someone who I knew was cool, who loved Christ, made a big impact on me. I'll come back to more stories later on, but uh, part of that is including an element of fun with the faith. I think it's so fitting that you know, pretty much in every church throughout the world, mass is so often linked with donuts. You know, what a great link to have to say, we come and pray, and then we have a good time and celebrate, because life really should be a time of joy as a Christian. So then we turn to the, the big turning at 14, when 14-year-olds start to think kind of more abstractly. And this is where apologetics can come in very, very helpful. We should encourage our kids' deeper questionings and one of the things I find most dangerous when parents tell their kids, oh, well, it's just a mystery, or, you know, you just have to believe. Because we as Catholics believe in fides querens intellectum. That was the great scholastic phrase for faith-seeking understanding. We believe that our faith has a content that we can understand with our mind. It's not just simply blind faith. It is faith, which means that we don't fully understand it. And in that sense, it's a mystery. It's something like a well that you can plumb and keep drawing water nonstop and you'll never reach the end of it. And that's what we mean by mystery. We don't mean that it's unknowable, but that it's infinitely knowable. So helping our kids to get to know the faith, perhaps through uh, you know, a good um, faith study group, maybe by giving them things like uh, the Baltimore Catechism and other faith studies, apologetics books, that can really root them in the reasons why we believe. And then finally, for 16, 17-year-olds, as they start to develop that independence, this is where we kind of make, have to make the shift to start really treating them like adults in the faith. Like my parents were great about if I wanted to go to a different mass than they went to, they said, all right, you know, as long as you're going to mass, that's, that's fine with me. So it wasn't so much necessarily about you now have to continue doing all of the stuff you've done with the family, but now, no, 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 you can take independence. You can choose when to go to mass. You can choose how to pray on your own as long as you're praying. That's all that really matters. So there's different kind of elements that we focus on at different times in a young person's life. But that's only one facet. 
Because if you turn the diamond, you look at another facet at how young people encounter Christ, and that is how God ministers to every human soul. This comes right out of Father Benedict Rochelle's book, Spiritual Passages, which he's borrowing a lot from St. Thomas Aquinas, and he borrowed a lot from, Saint, from Aristotle, so it goes all the way back to the Greeks, to the ancients. But Benedict Rochelle makes the great point that God reaches out to every human soul in one of three ways, truth, beauty, or goodness, the three transcendentals. So some people are more drawn to God by studying the faith, by knowing it, by intellectually kind of apprehending it. Some people are more drawn to God in the aesthetics, in entering into a beautiful church or seeing the beauty of nature. Some people are drawn to God through goodness and seeing the lives of the saints and the examples of, of the holy people that they're around or maybe doing service for the least, less fortunate. So let's take a look and dive in to see how we can help our kids and find out whether they're attracted to truth, beauty, or goodness. So first, truth. I think some souls are very much drawn to God through truth. I remember one time when I was teaching a confirmation class, and that's one of the most thankful, thankless and difficult jobs in the church, you know, corralling a bunch of eighth graders, most of whom are public schoolers. But there was one young man named Joe who never went to Mass, never had a you know, relationship with God, but he started to ask questions. And throughout that entire year, he asked more and more penetrating questions. How do you know there is a God? How do you know there's an afterlife? Can you really prove that Jesus is present in the Eucharist, et cetera, et cetera, and diving deeper? And towards the end of the year, I noticed that he started to come to Mass every weekend, and he started to pray, and then he started to join our youth group once he got confirmed, and then he started to dive deeper, and now he's a seminarian for our diocese in the, uh, the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut. And it was a joy to watch him grow because of discovering the beauty of the faith. And he, he just kind of intellectually wrapped his head around it, saw in it a beautiful worldview, and wanted to dive in head first. And that is the reality, is that our faith is not just a set of independent points, but it's a whole cosmology, a whole worldview that knits together well as a web. So for example, if we believe that the Eucharist is Jesus, then obviously we have to confess our sins before receiving him. And to confess our sins means we have to live a moral life. And the goal of the moral life is union with Christ. And the best way to have union with Christ is the Eucharist. So it kind of goes in this beautiful circle, this beautiful web where every piece is interrelated. And so if your child is drawn, drawn to God through truth, then the best thing we can do is give them resources to, to ground them more deeply in the truth. So maybe that is the Baltimore Catechism when they're young. Maybe in middle school, the, the UCAT or other question and answer books about the faith. And when they're older, things like even St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Peter Kreef, some of these great authors who write very deeply about the reasons why we believe. Now, with that said, I think we do have to be careful, particularly about the, if, you're, if your child is drawn to God through truth, of where they get the truth from. Because there's a lot of purported Catholic sites on the internet that are not truly Catholic, or that tend one way or the other, that can lead to a little bit of extremism. I know in the, in the classical Catholic school where I teach, I had a number of people, um, a number of students, freshmen, who were very, very drawn to God as truth, come up to me and say, I don't believe that Pope Francis is the real Pope, and here's all my reasons why. And I said, I had to say, oh, whoa, where'd you get that? And let's, let's talk through that and kind of dive deeper into it. Because not everything you read on the internet, of course, is true, right? So that's truth. Let's look at beauty. And this is the one that I love in particular, because this is the way in which God draws my heart to his and his heart to mine. It's through beauty. You know, I've never needed a reason for God's existence when I see a beautiful sunset. 
I mean, I remember one of the great turning points in my life when I was 14, I had the opportunity to go to Rome with the Legionaries of Christ, and it was a powerful experience. I just was just excited for 10 days without my parents in a foreign country. But I remember walking into the Sistine Chapel, and yeah, the ceiling is great, but more than the ceiling, on the far wall is Michelangelo's Last Judgment. And I remember being so struck by the power of that piece of art because I realized for the first time, holy cow, there's going to be a judgment, and there's only two options in the end. There's heaven and there's hell. Which one am I going to? Because I went to a parish growing up where heaven and hell were never talked about. It was just kind of swept under the rug. The kind of implicit assumption was, well, everyone goes to heaven and, you know, God is so nice. And then seeing that piece of artwork struck me to the heart and made me realize I've got to make a choice. Where am I going and who am I going to follow? And I realized my choice has got to be to follow Jesus Christ. And that was a big turning point in my life. And so finding those elements of beauty, whether it's beauty in song, beauty in nature, beauty in artwork, to help young people, beauty in churches, you know, taking them to a beautiful liturgy can really help a young person to encounter Christ if that's how God ministers to them through that beauty. And then finally, goodness, I think, is a third way and often kind of misunderstood. But I think a great example of that is the British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. Some of you may have heard of him. When he was uh, a young man, he was an agnostic, didn't have much faith in God at all. But towards the middle of his life, he, got, he was a journalist, and he got a very interesting assignment to go down to India and to interview this obscure nun that no one had ever heard of by the name of Mother Teresa. And so he goes down to India and ends up not only interviewing, but writing a whole book about Mother Teresa. And the two of them strike a very unlikely friendship to the point that 20 years later, Malcolm Muggeridge converts to Catholicism. And he said later that the, the impetus for it was not studying it. It wasn't necessarily something aesthetic. It was because he saw love in action. He saw what the gospel looked like when it was lived out through Mother Teresa. And certainly young people can respond to that in a powerful way. Every year I'm part of this Catholic summer camp in upstate New York called Camp Veritas. And I remember bringing a couple of kids from my parish at the time. I was in a very inner city parish in Stamford, Connecticut. And so I had this big group of Hispanic kids that went up there. And there were these two kids, Lucas and Franco, two seventh graders, who I'd constantly be losing. And I had no idea where they went. They would just run away. And every time I wanted to look for them, I knew I could find them with the Sisters of Life. They were so drawn to the joy and the goodness in the Sisters of Life and the way in which these nuns, these beautiful nuns, showed this unconditional love to these seventh grade boys that they couldn't stop being in their presence. And it made it kind of struck me like, wow, they're so drawn to God through the goodness of others. And so a lot of young people are. So what do we do? So if we notice that our kid is, is drawn to goodness, we give them opportunities to serve, and we show them the lives of the saints. Now, when I say serve, I don't necessarily just mean service projects, because real service takes place sometimes around the home. So challenging kids to say, look, put your love into action. Go do the dishes. I know that sounds very simple, but to be honest, Love in action is a way in which a lot of people that are drawn to God through goodness live it out. Okay, so let's turn the, turn the diamond again, look at another, another facet. And this is the identity question. So after watching the first Lord of the Rings movie with my sister, my sister Kathy and I were driving home after that awesome, powerful movie. Hopefully most of you have seen it, really great movie. And she looked off into the sunset because it was just, you know, sun was just setting, it was in December, you know, it was beautiful, radiating. And she said man, I wish life was like that. I wish life was like a glorious adventure, an epic quest, a battle for, for the world. And I thought to myself, 
you know, if you do Christianity right, life is like that. And life should be like that. And I think that's a really important um, calling on every heart, is that we desire to know that we're part of an epic story. We desire to know that there's meaning and purpose in our life, that our life is not just some random series of events that just means nothing. And that, I think, is one big struggle with a lot of modern kids, is that they've lost their place in the story. And I remember, you know, a very kind of modern uh, mentality of somebody tweeted out, uh, some basketball player tweeted out about her, you know, their 12-year-old daughter kind of doing, doing something that was very woke. And the 12-year-old daughter, he, and he just said, you know, I'm so proud of you for living your truth. And I thought that was a perfect example of, of how we've lost their part in the story. We just kind of want to live our truth, live our story. But the truth is we live in a bigger story. We live in the story of salvation history. So let's look at that. I mean, what does that mean to live in the story of salvation history? Well, the truth is that the scriptures, although they're already written, they're now lived out. Really, if we look at the book of human history, God has moved from the beginning. The beginning was creation. Then God moved even after the fall, trying to rescue us. And this rescue mission took the form of covenants in the Old Testament until finally the ultimate covenant was Jesus Christ and his death on the cross that saved us from all our sins. But then he sent forth the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit inspires the church to continue on the mission. And so we're still living in that story. And what is that great mission that we are entrusted in? That mission is bringing about the kingdom of God, letting Christ's kingdom rule first in our own hearts and then in our homes, in our lands, in our, on our baseball teams, in our schools, in our, in our neighborhoods, letting Christ's kingdom come. And we have a, a role and a duty to do that. I think it's so fitting that in the, the traditional Latin Mass, after Pentecost, they don't call them Sundays of ordinary time. They call them the Sundays after Pentecost. I think that has such a rich theological meaning to say that we're still living in the Pentecostal time, in the time when the Holy Spirit is still living and active in the church and in our world. And we have a, in, a, an unreplaceable role to play in bringing about, about Christ's kingdom and bringing souls to heaven. You know, when I was uh, being ordained a priest, it's customary for the other priests to give you an embrace. And the priest that I looked up to the most who preached in my first Mass, when he embraced me, he said something I'll never forget. He said, bring a thousand souls to heaven with you. Bring a thousand souls to heaven with you. And I thought, wow, that's my mission. But it's not just my mission. It's the mission of really every Christian to bring as many souls to heaven as we can. Not only to save our own souls, but to help Christ save the world through us. And in a very real way, as a layperson, you have the role and the powerful privilege of bringing Christ to places that I can't go. You can bring it to your workplaces. You can bring it to your neighborhoods. You can bring it to your sports teams. You can bring it to your families. People that will never set foot in church will hear the gospel of Christ first lived out through your life, but second through your words and through your example, bringing souls into the fullness of truth in the Catholic faith. And so this is the mission that we have to set kids in and say, look, you have an identity. You have a mission. You have a purpose here on this earth. And that purpose is not just to bide time. Your purpose is not just to succeed in a worldly sense of getting a good job and going to a nice college and you know, getting married and settling down, having a picket fence and two dogs and you know, this and that. No, ultimately, your mission has eternal consequence. There is something tremendous hanging in the balance. And you live in a battle, a battle between good and evil. In fact, as St. Maximilian Kolbe said, he said, the battlefield between God and Satan is the human soul. The battlefield between God and Satan is the human soul. And so we have an incredible privilege to fight the spiritual battle, not only for our own sanctity, but for the sanctity of the world. And so we have to give these kids more than just mere moralism, 
right? There's more, the, more to Christianity than just a few Bible stories and be a nice person, right? I remember reading an interview with the, um, the creator of VeggieTales. Some of you probably have watched VeggieTales and used them with, with your kids. And he says he totally regrets making VeggieTales. And he said, and somebody asked him, well, why do you regret that? And he said, because he taught kids that the Christianity was just random Bible stories and be nice. And he said, there's so much more to it than that. And I thought that was a great insight because there really is so much more to it as that. And so we have to teach our kids the kerygma, which is the core gospel message of God loves you, but we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ came to die for our sins and now the Holy Spirit lives in us. And then putting us in that grander story, the story of salvation history, so that we can be led closer to Christ. And that will help a kid to understand that, hey, you got a purpose. You're put here on this earth for a reason. Now live out that reason. Okay, we move on to another facet. Turn that diamond again. And we look now at the way in which there's specific uh, character traits and our relationship with Christ. So for a few years, I went to go and be chaplain of Regina Chaley, which some of you perhaps are a part of Regina Chaley. It's a homeschool hybrid that's very popular here in Connecticut and all throughout the United States. And in Regina Chaley, they're very focused on the four temperaments, the four character traits uh, that a lot of people kind of, as a way in which we see the human person. For example, there are people that are sanguine. And sanguine are those who are energetic or talkative or happy, kind of like adventurous. There are people who are phlegmatic, people who are a little bit more people persons, but like peacemakers, just kind of mellow, just chill, just kind of go with the flow. People who are choleric, who are goal-oriented, you know, type A personalities, very straightforward, very driven. That's me, 100%. And then there are people who are melancholic, just kind of deep thinkers, kind of people who sometimes are homebodies or like, like a lot of stability. And the truth is that depending on your child's temperament, different, God can minister to them in different ways, and God can cause greatness and holiness to be achieved in different ways. For example, if someone is sanguine, they might struggle with certain elements. They might struggle with being like flighty and not making decisions or you know, not persevering, being superficial. But they also have the incredible gifts of you know, being cheerful and generous and being somebody that others like to be around, sharing joy. So our goal as parents is to help them to accentuate the positive and to do our best to be aware of the potential weaknesses where Christ needs to come and really conquer that element of our personality. And we see some examples of that. Like, for example, St. Teresa of Avila was a very, very gregarious person, loved to be going out and just a people person, but also had to conquer some of the, the weaker elements of that so that everything can be given to Christ. Or indeed, if someone, for example, just give another example, if someone is phlegmatic, you know, somebody that perhaps might struggle with laziness because they're just kind of chill and go with the flow, they may struggle with the inability to take initiative. But the flip side is that they're also very peaceful. They can bring peace to difficult situations and to difficult people. You know, I think of an example that, that somebody once used was St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a very deep thinker, very peaceful, very tranquil, nothing really ruffled him. You know, of course, you have that great story of, his, uh, friends, his Dominican brothers, one time when he was working, ran up to him and said, Thomas, Thomas, guess what? Pigs are flying outside. And so he runs to the window, where, where, where? And of course, they're laughing and laughing and laughing. But instead of getting flustered, he just kind of turned back to them and said, I would rather believe that pigs were flying than that my Dominican brothers would lie to me. You know, and they were like, oh, no, you got us. You're right, you're right. But what a great person who just kept his peace, was not troubled, just, you know, kept a... And so, so you kind of accentuate the positives and you kind of work on the negatives. Finally, we're going to look at one last facet. So we turn the diamond one last time. 
And this facet is the stages of the spiritual life. And this comes from both St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, and a lot of the great spiritual writers from there. And they talk about how there's really three main stages of the spiritual life. There's, but to enter into it, first, there's a conversion experience. Now, here's the thing. Grace is a mystery. And that's one of the hardest things I find as a priest, is that grace works so uniquely on every human soul. Like, for example, I've seen God experience God. I've seen people experience God through nature, through adoration, through talks, through praise and worship, through hikes, through homilies, through conversations, through artwork, through the birth of their child, through seeing someone close to them die, through going through an existential crisis, through silence. There could be a thousand different ways in which God is going to minister to each individual person. So we may say, well, I want my kids to encounter Christ, so let's bring them to adoration. That may work for some kids, may not work for other kids, right? And that's, that's how a lot of families kind of struggle because they say, well, I raised all my kids the same and not all of them have the same faith. True, but that's because God works differently with everyone. It's a great story of uh, a young monk who went out to see an older desert father. And this desert father was uh, just sharing a lot of wisdom and this and that. And he told him all about different ways to pray. And so the monk really wanted to encounter God. So after several months, the young monk said, okay, I've learned so many ways to pray, so when can I encounter God? And the older monk said, well, you can't. You can't encounter God. When can you? And, and the other monk said, well, wait a second. Why did you teach me all this stuff if I can't encounter God? And the older wise monk said, well, can you make the sun rise? He said, well, no. Ah, and the older monk said, okay, my goal is not for you to make the sun rise. My goal is for you to be awake when the sun rises. So our goal sometimes is to help kids to, to find ways in which God is going to minister to them by giving them different experiences, different experiences of prayer, different experiences like going to a Catholic summer camp or taking them to adoration, teaching them the rosary, bringing them to nature and to beauty. And the first step really is the conversion awakening experience. Not everyone needs this. I know young people that have not needed a conversion experience to be passionate about the Lord. For example, I remember this one kid I was working with um, his mom came to me when he was seven years old or six years old because he was asking to receive communion a year early. And I thought, well, sure, you know, he's very devout. But his mom told me an amazing story. He said that she was telling her son the story of St. John Vianney, how when the devil appeared to St. John Vianney, the devil said, if there were three people as holy as you on this earth, Father Vianney, my kingdom would be broken. And young Christopher started to cry when his mom told him the story. And Christopher's mom said, well, why are you crying? And Christopher said, I'm so sad that there's only been one person that holy. I want to be the second. I thought, wow, there's a six-year-old who has an incredible faith in God. So not everybody needs a conversion experience, but most of them do. You know, most of them have a period of going from perhaps not caring that much about the faith to caring more seriously. And so we just simply give kids that opportunity for God to move by giving them a wide variety of different encounters with Christ. But once they start out, then comes the purgative way. The purgative way is where the, the dealing is with struggling with sin. And so that's a great opportunity to take kids regularly to confession. I know my brother, when he was struggling with sin growing up, of course, he didn't want to talk to his parents about it. So my parents were good. They just kind of knew, all right, as soon as you hit 12 years old, you're coming to confession every two weeks. And it ended up helping him tremendously. But to get from the purgative way to the next stage, the illuminative way, you have to enter through a dark night. And that's a period of suffering. And I know as parents, we don't like watching our kids suffer. It's a terrible thing. But at the same time, watching our kids suffer, we, we're here to help them through it. We're here not to shield them from it, but to say, where is God in the midst of this? What is God trying to do? How is he trying to form you? What virtues are you trying to grow in through this suffering, whatever it is? 
so we can be there through that dark night to lead them to a deeper understanding of Christ. Then we enter into the illuminative way, and that's to grow in our, our personal knowledge of Christ and our personal following of Christ. A wise priest once told me, pray as you can, not as you can't. And that's good advice for helping to raise kids. Look, pray as you can, not as you can. If you find a young person very drawn to scripture, give them scripture. If you find them very drawn to adoration, give them adoration. Certainly, you know, as Christian Catholics, we have the bare minimum of, of weekly mass. But apart from that, give them the flexibility to find Christ in the way God is ministering to them. And then finally, the whole, the whole goal is the unitive way, being united to Christ so fully. Now for that, they're going to need a spiritual director. And here's an important thing. Parents can never be their kid's spiritual director. You have to find another person that they can trust and that you can trust to lead them along the right path. So give them a spiritual director, particularly if they're very serious about the spiritual life, and help them along that path. So I think I've run out of time. I was given the, <laughs> given the two-minute warning, and that was three minutes ago. Unfortunately, a lot more to say, but I think we're going to turn to some questions and answers, which hopefully will maybe answer some of the questions that you may have.